One afternoon near Paris, my father and I visited the great cathedral at Chartres. Malcolm Miller, a world expert on the cathedral, pointed out three sets of Chartres stained glass windows. He said they tell a story. The first windows show Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden. The second recount the parable of the Good Samaritan. The third depict the Lord's second coming. Taken together, these stained glass windows can describe our eternal journey. They invite us to welcome all with room in his inn. Like Adam and Eve, we come into a world of thorns and thistles. On our dusty roads to Jericho, we're beset upon, wounded, and left in pain. Though we should help each other, too often we pass to the other side of the road, for whatever reason. The Good Samaritan puts us on his own donkey, or in some stained glass accounts, carries us on his shoulders. The Good Samaritan, a symbol of our Savior, promises to return. Jesus Christ invites us to become like him, a Good Samaritan, to make his inn, his church, a refuge for all from life's bruises and storms. We prepare for his promised second coming, as each day we do unto the least of these, as we would do unto him. The least of these is each of us. We come to the end as we are, with the foibles and imperfections we each have, yet we all have something needed to contribute. Our journey to God is often found together. We belong as a united community, whether confronting pandemics, storms, wildfires, droughts, or quietly meeting daily needs. As our hearts change and we receive His image in our countenance, we see Him and ourselves in His church. In Him we find clarity, not dissonance. In Him we find cause to do good, reason to be good, and increasing capacity to become better. In Him we discover abiding faith, liberating selflessness, caring change, and trusting God. In His end, we find and deepen our personal relationship with God our Father and Jesus Christ. He entreats us to make His inn a place of grace and space where each can gather with room for all. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we're all equal, with no second-class groups. We mourn, rejoice, and are there for each other. In His end, we learn perfection is in Jesus Christ, not in the perfectionism of the world. Unreal and unrealistic, the world's insta-perfect filtered perfectionism can make us feel inadequate, captive to swipes, likes, or double taps. In contrast, our Savior Jesus Christ knows everything about us we don't want anyone else to know, and He still loves us. His is a gospel of second and third chances, made possible by His atoning sacrifice. He invites each of us to be a good Samaritan, less judgmental and more forgiving of ourselves and of each other, even as we strive more fully to keep His commandments. At His Inn, we become part of a gospel community centered in Jesus Christ, anchored in restored truth. We rejoice that God loves His children and our different backgrounds and circumstances in every nation, kindred, and tongue, with room for all in His Inn. Disciples of Jesus Christ come from everywhere, in every shape, size, hue, age, each with talents, righteous desires, and immense capacities to bless and serve. Our Good Samaritan promises to return. Miracles occur when we care for each other as He would. As we create room in His inn, welcoming all, our Good Samaritan can heal us on our dusty mortal roads. With perfect love, our Father and His Son Jesus Christ promise peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. I have no hesitancy in stating, brothers and sisters, that unless checked, permissiveness by the end of its journey 
will cause humanity to stare in mute disbelief at its awful consequences. Ironically, as some people become harder, they use softer words to describe dark deeds. This, too, is part of being sedated by secularism. Needless abortion, for instance, is a reproductive health procedure, which is an even more spongy expression than termination of pregnancy. Illegitimacy gives way to the wholly sanitized non-marital birth or alternative parenting. Church members will live in this wheat and tear situation until the millennium. Some real tares even masquerade as wheat, including the few eager individuals who lecture the rest of us about church doctrines in which they no longer believe. They criticize the use of church resources to which they no longer contribute. They condescendingly seek to counsel a brethren whom they no longer sustain. Confrontive, except of themselves, of course, they leave the church, but they cannot leave the church alone. Like the throng on the ramparts of the great and spacious building, they are intensely and busily preoccupied, pointing fingers of scorn at the steadfast iron rodders. Considering their ceaseless preoccupation, one wonders, is there no diversionary activity available to them, especially in such a large building? <laughs> like a bowling alley. Perhaps in their mockings, beneath the stir, are repressed doubts of their doubts. Therefore, brothers and sisters, quiet goodness must persevere, even when, as prophesied, a few actually rage in their anger against that which is good. Likewise, the arrogance of critics must be met by the meekness and articulateness of believers. If sometimes ringed by resentment, we must still reach out, especially for those whose hands hang down. If our shortcomings as a people are occasionally highlighted, then let us strive to do better. The adversary and his followers have always sought to destroy the works of Christ and his prophets. The Savior's commandments, if not ignored altogether, have been rationalized into meaninglessness by many in today's world. Messengers of God who teach inconvenient truths are often dismissed. Even the Savior himself was called a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, accused of disturbing public sentiment and being divisive. Weak and conniving souls took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk, and his sect of early Christians was everywhere spoken against. The Savior and his early followers dealt with serious internal and external opposition, and we experienced the same. Today, it is almost impossible to courageously live our faith without occasionally attracting a few actual and virtual fingers of scorn from the worldly. Confidently following the Savior is rewarding, but at times we may get caught in the crosshairs of those advocating an eat-drink-and-be-merry philosophy, where faith in Christ, obedience, and repentance are substituted by the illusion that God will justify a little sin because He loves us so much. If our spiritual foundation is shallow or superficial, we might be inclined to base our willingness on a social cost-benefit analysis or a personal inconvenience index. And if we embrace the narrative that the Church consists primarily of outdated or politically incorrect social policies, unrealistic personal restrictions, and time commitments, then our conclusions about willingness will be flawed. We should not expect the principle of willingness to trend positively with social media influencers or TikTok enthusiasts. The precepts of men rarely align with divine truth. The Church is a gathering place for imperfect individuals who love God and who are willing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That willingness is rooted in the reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This divine truth can only be known 
by the power of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, our willingness is directly proportionate to the amount of time we commit to be in holy places where the influence of the Holy Ghost is present. We would do well to spend more time in meaningful conversation discussing our concerns with a, lovely, uh, with a loving Father in heaven and less time seeking the opinions of other voices. We could also choose to change our daily news feed to the words of Christ in the Holy Scriptures and to prophetic words from his holy living prophets. Are we willing to put forth more than a superficial effort into strengthening our faith in Christ? Heavenly Father loves us perfectly, but that love comes with great expectations. He expects us to willingly place the Savior at the very center of our lives. The Savior is our perfect example of willingness to submit to the Father in all things. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He willingly atoned for our sins. He willingly eases our burdens, calms our fears, gives us strength, and brings peace and understanding to our hearts in times of distress and grief. Yet, faith in Jesus Christ is a choice. Our eternal perspective not only enlarges our understanding of those who are continuing their journey beyond mortality, but also opens our understanding understanding of those who are earlier in their journey and just now entering mortality. Each person who comes to earth is a unique son or daughter of God. Our personal journey did not begin at birth. Before we were born, we were together in a world of preparation where we received our first lessons in the world of spirits. Jehovah told Jeremiah, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. Some may question if life begins with the formation of an embryo, or when the heart begins to beat, or when the baby can live outside the womb. But for us, there is no question that spirit daughters and sons of God are on their own personal journeys, coming to earth to receive a body and experience mortality. As covenant children of God, we love, honor, nurture, safeguard, and welcome those spirits who are coming from the premortal world. For a woman, having a child can be a great sacrifice, physically, emotionally, and economically. We love and honor the amazing women of this church. With intelligence and wisdom, you bear the burdens of your family. You love, you serve, you sacrifice, you strengthen faith, minister to those in need, and greatly contribute to society. Years ago, feeling deep concern for the number of abortions in the world, President Gordon B. Hinckley addressed the women of the church with words that are relevant for us today. He said, You who are the wives and mothers are the anchors of the family. You bear the children. What an enormous and sacred responsibility that is. What is happening to our appreciation of the sanctity of human life? Abortion is an evil, stark and real and repugnant which is sweeping over the earth. I plead with the women of this church to shun it, to stand above it, to stay away from those compromising situations which make it appear desirable. There may be some few circumstances under which it can occur, but they are extremely limited. You are the mothers of the sons and daughters of God whose lives are sacred. Safeguarding them is a divinely given responsibility which cannot be lightly brushed aside. Elder Marcus B. Nash shared with me the story of a dear 84-year-old woman 
who during her baptismal interview acknowledged an abortion many years before. With heartfelt emotion, she said, I have carried the burden of having aborted a child every day of my life for 46 years. Nothing I did would take the pain and guilt away. I was hopeless until I was taught the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I learned how to repent, and suddenly I was filled with hope. I finally came to know that I could be forgiven if I truly repented of my sins. How grateful we are for the divine gifts of repentance and forgiveness. Many years ago, Elder Mark E. Peterson, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, began a talk with this hypothetical example, quote, Kenneth and his wife Lucille are good people, honest and upright. They don't go to church, though, and they feel they can be good enough without it. They teach their children honesty and virtue, and they tell themselves that is about all the church would do for them. And anyway, they insist that they need their weekends for family recreation, and church-going would really get in their way." End of quote. Today, my message concerns such good and religious-minded people who have stopped attending or participating in their churches. When I say churches, I include synagogues, mosques, or other religious organizations. We are concerned that attendance in all of these is down significantly nationwide. If we cease valuing our churches for any reason, we threaten our personal spiritual life and significant numbers separating themselves from God reduces his blessings to our nations. Attendance and activity in a church help us become better people and better influences on the lives of others. In church, we are taught how to apply religious principles. We learn from one another. A persuasive example is more powerful than a sermon. We are strengthened by associating with others of like minds. In church attendance and participation, our hearts are, as the Bible says, knit together in love. The scriptures God has given Christians in the Bible and in modern revelation clearly teach the need for a church. Both show that Jesus Christ organized a church and contemplated that a church would carry on his work after him. He called 12 apostles and gave them authority and keys to direct it. The Bible teaches that Christ is the head of the church and that its officers were given for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Surely the Bible is clear on the origin of a church and the need for it now. Some say that attending church meetings is not helping them. Some say, I didn't learn anything today, or no one was friendly to me, or I was offended. Personal disappointment should never keep us from the doctrine of Christ who taught us to serve, not to be served. With this in mind, another member described the focus of his church attendance, quote, Years ago, I changed my attitude about going to church. No longer do I go to church for my sake, but to think of others. I make a point of saying hello to people who sit alone, 
to welcome visitors, to volunteer for an assignment. In short, I go to church each week with the intent of being active, not passive, and making a positive difference in people's lives." End of quote. President Spencer W. Kimball taught that, quote, we do not go to Sabbath meetings to be entertained or even simply to be instructed. We go to worship the Lord. It is an individual responsibility. If the service is a failure to you, you have failed. No one can worship for you. You must do your own waiting upon the Lord." End of quote. Church attendance can open our hearts and sanctify our souls. In a church, we don't just serve alone or at our own choice or convenience. We usually serve in a team. In service, we find heaven-sent opportunities to rise above the individualism of our age. Church-directed service helps us overcome the personal selfishness that can retard our spiritual growth. There are other important advantages to mention, even briefly. In church, we associate with wonderful people striving to serve God. This reminds us that we are not alone in our religious activities. We all need associations with others, and church associations are some of the best we can experience for us and our companions and children. Without those associations, especially between children and faithful parents, research shows increasing difficulty for parents to raise children in their faith. So far, I've spoken about churches generally. Now I address the special reasons for membership attendance and participation in the Savior's restored Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We, of course, affirm that the scriptures, ancient and modern, clearly teach the origin and need for a church directed by and with the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also testify that the restored Church of Jesus Christ has been established to teach the fullness of His doctrine and to officiate with His priesthood authority to perform the ordinances necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Members who forego church attendance and rely only on individual spirituality separate themselves from these gospel essentials, the power and blessings of the priesthood, the fullness of restored doctrine, and the motivations and opportunities to apply that doctrine. Another great advantage of the restored Church is that it helps us grow spiritually. Growth means change. In spiritual terms, this means repenting and seeking to draw nearer to the Lord. In the restored Church, we have doctrine, procedures, and inspired helpers that assist us to repent. Their purpose even in membership councils, is not punishment like the outcome of a criminal court. Church membership councils lovingly seek to help us qualify for the mercy of forgiveness made possible through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Individual spirituality can seldom provide the motivation and structure for unselfish service provided by the restored church.
glorious it is to contemplate that we've been invited into that perfect unity that exists with the Father and the Son. How may this happen? Jesus achieved unity by submitting himself, both flesh and spirit, to the will of the Father. Referring to his Father, Jesus said, I do always those things that please him. Surely we will not be one with God and Christ until we make their will and interest our greatest desire. Such submissiveness is not reached in a day, but through the Holy Spirit. The Lord will tutor us, if we are willing, until in process of time it may accurately be said that He is in us as the Father is in Him. At times I tremble to consider what may be required. But I know that it is only in this perfect union with deity that a fullness of joy can be found. I am grateful beyond expression that I am invited to be one with those holy beings I revere and worship as my Heavenly Father and Redeemer. May God hear the Savior's prayer and lead us all to be one with them. I don't believe I've ever met anybody who didn't want to belong to, uh, to something that made them feel worthwhile, that made them feel uh, that they had value. When people wonder, is there a place for me? It may be any number of, of things behind that. And now they ask themselves, do I fit? Do I belong here? Do they really need me? And I want to say emphatically, yes. Um, I think of the metaphor of Paul, which I love very much, about the church as the body of Christ. And he says we're, we're baptized into that body. And he says it's one body, many members, but one body. I understand you know, people's feelings at times that they may not be needed. And sometimes uh, others are guilty of saying, we don't need this person, we don't need that person, we're fine as we are. Neither one is true. That's not the Christian way. That's not the way Christ sees us. Uh, he sees us of all, all of us with infinite worth and whatever our condition at the moment may be, uh, the body of Christ is there to sustain each member. When a person feels isolated, uh, I don't deny the reality of the feeling and why it's so natural to feel that way. But each of us, whenever that sense may come upon us, need to stop and think, Jesus Christ died for me. Jesus Christ thought me worthy of his blood. And he loves me. He has hopes for me and he can make a difference in my life. His grace can transform me. And maybe this person sitting next to me, ignoring me or um, even wanting to move away, maybe he or she doesn't. But that doesn't change the reality of what Christ feels toward me and the possibilities I have in Christ. And it breaks my heart if someone comes and and yeah, is very vulnerable and says, I, I, I want to try it, I want to be here, uh, and then get a cold shoulder or a lack of interest. And that's, that's tragic. It really is tragic. We, we have to be better than that. The diversity we find now in the church may be just the beginning, frankly. I think we'll see greater and greater diversity. In the ancient church, there was tremendous diversity. And it's not just diversity for diversity's sake, but the fact that people can bring different gifts and perspectives and the wide range of experience and backgrounds and, and challenges that people face will show us what really is essential in the gospel of Christ. And much of the rest that's been perhaps acquired over time and is more cultural than doctrinal can, can slip away and we can really learn to be disciples. So. We've, on the one hand, got to be better 
as a people at receiving and helping and walking together with everybody. And on the other hand, uh, every individual needs to be determined that uh, they're going to, to have a place in the kingdom of God. They're going to have a place in the body of Christ and others who are thoughtless or careless or worse can't prohibit that, can't drive them away, can't uh, take it away from them. As Latter-day Saints, many of us, not all of us, but many of us are inclined to insist on the law and do so in an unloving way. I receive many letters from people who are devastated at the choices being made by someone in their family. And they say, what are we to do? And the first thing I always suggest is keep loving them. Uh, in the end, that is something you can always do. We have to have in mind the commandments of the Lord, which I'll refer to as the law, and also the great commandment to love one another. And those will come into conflict when someone we associate with is not keeping the commandments or keeping the law, and that makes it harder for us to associate with them and to love them. And yet, if we love the individual and at the same time uh, keep a tight hold on what we know to be our responsibilities to the law, it's possible to do so. We benefit by having people among us from different backgrounds. And the challenge of having people among us who, who bring a different point of view, a different background, different ways of thinking, uh, different values uh, to some extent, it, it's great. And it's a personal benefit for our progress. We should not start off our interaction with people who are making different choices than we desire by arguing about their choices. It's better for us to start off talking about uh, where are you coming from? What are your basic values? What do you want to accomplish? And then in that context, we can explain that we're concerned about the Lord's commandments because what's important to us is to stay on the path to eternal life. We're given commandments. When we obey those commandments, we're obedient. The consequence of being obedient to commandments is to put ourselves in harmony with the eternal law that permits us to grow and progress toward eternal life. The Savior commanded his followers to love one another as I have loved you. So we look at how he loved us. He sacrificed himself for us. He was concerned always with the individual. He had a wonderful uh, outreach for people. I think those are all indicators of how we can love one another like he loved us. If we make him our role model, we should always be trying to reach out to include everyone. With admiration and encouragement for everyone who will need to remain steadfast in these latter days, I say to all, and especially the youth of the Church, that if you haven't already, you will one day find yourself called upon to defend your faith or perhaps even endure some personal abuse. Such moments will require both courage and courtesy on your part. For example, a sister missionary recently wrote to me, My companion and I saw a man sitting on a bench in the town square eating his lunch. As we drew near, he looked up and saw our missionary name tags. With a terrible look in his eye, he jumped up and raised his hand to hit me. I ducked just in time, 
only to have him spit his food all over me and start swearing the most horrible things at us. We walked away, saying nothing. I tried to wipe the food off my face, only to feel a clump of mashed potato hit me in the back of the head. Sometimes, she wrote, it's hard being a missionary <laughs> because right then I wanted to go back, grab that little man, and say, excuse me, <laughs> but I didn't. To this devoted missionary, I say, dear child, you have in your own humble way stepped into a circle of very distinguished women and men. In keeping with the Savior's own experience, there has been a long history of rejection and a painfully high price paid by prophets and apostles, missionaries and members in every generation, all those who've tried to honor God's call to lift the human family to a more excellent way. And what shall I say of them, the writer of the book of Hebrews asks? They who stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, waxed valiant in fight, turned armies to flight, saw their dead raised to life while others were tortured, and had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. They of whom the world was not worthy wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Surely the angels of heaven wept as they recorded this cost of discipleship in a world that is often hostile to the commandments of God. The Savior Himself sat on the Mount of Olives and shed His own tears over those who for hundreds of years had been rejected and slain in His service. And now He was being rejected and about to be slain. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus cried, Thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And herein lies a message for every young man and young woman in this church. You may wonder if it is worth it to take a courageous moral stand in high school or go on a mission only to have your most cherished beliefs reviled or to strive against much in society that sometimes ridicules a life of religious devotion. Yes, it is worth it because the alternative is to have our houses left unto us desolate. Desolate individuals, desolate families, desolate neighborhoods, and desolate nations. So here we have the burden of those called to bear the messianic mission, message. In addition to teaching, encouraging, and cheering people on, that's the pleasant part of discipleship. From time to time, these same messengers are called upon to worry, to warn, and sometimes just to weep. That's the painful part of discipleship. They know full well that the road leading to the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, of necessity runs by way of Mount Sinai, flowing with thou shalt's and thou shalt not. Unfortunately, messengers of divinely mandated commandments are often no more popular today than they were anciently, as at least two spit-upon 
potato-spattered sister missionaries can now attest. Hate is an ugly word. Yet there are those today who would say with the corrupt Ahab, I hate the prophet Micaiah, for he never prophesied good unto me, but always prophesied evil. That kind of hate for a prophet's honesty cost Abinadi his life. As he said to King Noah, because I've told you the truth, you are angry with me. Because I've spoken the word of God, you have judged me that I am mad. Or we might add provincial, patriarchal, bigoted, unkind, narrow, outmoded, and elderly. It is as the Lord himself lamented to the prophet Isaiah. These children will not hear the law of the Lord. They say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things. Speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get you out of the way. Turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Sadly enough, my young friends, it is a characteristic of our age that if people want any gods at all, they want them to be gods who do not demand much, comfortable gods, smooth gods, who not only don't rock the boat but don't even row it. <laughs> gods who pat us on the head, make us giggle, then tell us to run along and pick marigolds. Talk about man creating God in his own image. Sometimes, and this seems the greatest irony of all, these folks invoke the name of Jesus as one who was this kind of comfortable God. Really? He who said, not only should we not break commandments, but we should not even think about breaking them? And if we do think about breaking them, we've already broken them in our heart. Does that sound like comfortable doctrine, easy on the ear, and popular down at the village love in? And what of those who want to look at sin or touch it from a distance? Jesus said with a flash, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. I came not to bring peace but a sword, he warned those who thought he spoke only soothing platitudes. No wonder that sermon after sermon, the local communities, and I quote, prayed him to depart out of their coasts. No wonder, miracle after miracle, his power was attributed not to God but to the devil. It's obvious that the bumper sticker question, what would Jesus do, will not always bring a popular response. At the zenith of, of his mortal ministry, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. To make certain they understood exactly what kind of love that was, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And whosoever shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so shall be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Christ-like love is the greatest need we have on this planet, in part because righteousness was always supposed to accompany it. So if love is to be our watchword, and it must be, then by the word of him who is love personified, we must forsake transgression and any hint of advocacy for it in others. Jesus clearly understood what many in our modern culture seem to forget, that there is a crucial difference between the commandment to forgive sin which he had an infinite capacity to do, and the warning against condoning it, 
which he never, ever did even once. Friends, especially my young friends, take heart. Pure Christ-like love flowing from true righteousness can change the world. I testify that the true and living gospel of Jesus Christ is on the earth, and you are members of his true and living church trying to share that gospel. I bear witness of it, and I bear witness of the church with a particular witness of restored priesthood keys which unlock the power and efficacy of saving ordinances. I am more certain that those keys have been restored and those ordinances are once again available through the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints than I am certain that I stand before you at this pulpit and you sit before me in this conference. Now be strong. Live the gospel. Faithfully, even if others around you don't live it at all, Defend your beliefs with courtesy and with compassion, but defend them. A long history of inspired voices point you toward the path of Christian discipleship. It is a straight path, and it is a narrow path without a great deal of latitude at some points, but it can be thrillingly and successfully traveled with steadfastness in Christ, a perfect brightness of hope, and a love of God and of all men. In courageously pursuing such a course, you will forge unshakable faith. You will find safety against ill winds that blow, even shafts in the whirlwind, and you will feel the rock-like strength of our Redeemer upon whom if you build your unflagging discipleship, you cannot fall. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen.
make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Children and their children and their children. 